we didn't cover purity of heart, which is found in Lesson 30, so you might want to go there. And let's, before we begin, have you started the tape already? Oh, great. <laughs> That's okay. Let's read um, Isaiah 9-6. Let's do that. You all know this verse. We're going to be talking about peace, so I thought, and because it's Christmas time, I thought this would be a good verse just to open our study. It says in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, everybody let's say them together, Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. All right, now you can go over to Matthew chapter 5, and let's begin with a word of prayer. Feed me. <laughs> Father, thank you for this beautiful day that you have given to us. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. In fact, he is our peace. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through him, and we cannot thank you enough for that. And, Lord, we can also not only have peace with you, but we can have the peace of God, which passes all understanding, a peace that the world does not even begin to understand. And, again, we thank you and praise you for that. And now, Lord, I pray that you give each of us peace in our heart as we focus single-mindedly on what your Spirit has to say to us and teach to us through your holy word. For we do pray in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Okay, so before we take a look at the Beatitudes for lesson number 31, which are uh, peace and persecution, I do need to finish up the sixth sermon, Beatitude, which we didn't discuss last week, which is purity of heart, found in verse 8. But uh, before I do that, let's read the Beatitudes like we're going to be doing every week as we're studying them, because I think that helps to reinforce what they are in our hearts. So looking at verse Two, where it says Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, I'm going to start with the first beatitude in verse 3, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And the one we're going to start with tonight, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we're also going to look at the next one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And Lord willing, next week we'll have a short lesson along with our Christmas dinner on the last beatitude. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Purity of heart, also subtitled sanctification. No one, of course, can possess a totally pure heart other than the Godhead. Although there have been those who have taken this beatitude, believe it or not, and they have used it to support their false, deluded claims that there can be a complete purification of the old nature. In other words, what they do is they take this verse and they say that the carnal man within the saved man or the regenerate man can be totally eradicated so that there is no more sin. So what they're saying is that there is no sin of any kind, no sinful actions, no sinful thoughts, no sinful desires, no sinful omissions. Can you imagine that? You know what I mean when I say no sinful omissions? It's one thing to uh, commit sins, sins of commission that we commit. But a sin of omission is a sin of not doing something that we should do. Now, I mean, that happens every single day with me. But these people say that um, you can be totally sinless. And they use this verse to support, you know, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't quite understand how they do that, because it does definitely contradict other teaching of Scripture. For example, uh, 1 John 1, 8, John tells us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It, um, it is, as great as it would be, it is not possible for any of us, as, you know, I'm talking about believers, of course, to totally be sinless without sin until the day of our glorification. 
so having purity of heart does not mean that the kingdom citizen has an absolutely sinless life. And Paul understood that, the Apostle Paul, even though he wanted to always do good, and I hope, of course, that's our desire as well, he understood that there was a law in his members, in other words, there was a law in his flesh, in his body parts, that was continuously at war with the law of his mind, which desired to serve the law of God. You can read about that in Romans 7, 21. You know, remember how he said, oh, wretched man that I am. However, the good thing is that he recognized that this battle was going on within him, and he truly desired to have a pure heart. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. How many of you can identify with that? I certainly can. Um, so if we, and the good news is if we can identify with Paul, in regard to this inward struggle with the impurities that still indwell our members, then we have evidence of our salvation. So that's the good news. The bad news is that we have this continual struggle until the day of our glorification. But the good news is if you do desire to always do that which is right and have a pure heart and pure motives, etc., um, then that is evidence that you truly are saved. One of the most conclusive proofs, proofs of a saved person is his desire to possess a pure heart. Now, in defining what the Lord Jesus meant by the term pure in heart, we need to look at two words and what they mean in the Bible. The first word is pure. The second word is heart. The word pure in Greek is the word katharoi. I don't think that's in your notes. It obviously is where catharization, the word catharization comes from. It's also where my name comes from. It's spelled K-A-T-H-A-R-O-I. So all of you Catherines who spell your name with a C, you're unbiblical. <laughs> there is no C in the Greek alphabet. And that's, you know, for years I've been trying to have Frank, let Frank uh, make Frank change Caldwell to a K, but he just won't do that. But all of our kids are Ks, and the reason for that is because there is no C in the Greek alphabet. So I'm just teasing you Catherines with a C. Um, is your mother a C? Is she? Oh, don't tell her I said this. Then. <laughs> I just thought of that. But the word in Greek refers to, and boy, what a, what a name to live up to. It's impossible. But the word refers to holy, H, not, not the other kind of holy. I could, I could live up to that one. <laughs> but it refers to H-O-L-Y, holy, undefiled, unpolluted, unmixed, cleansed, purged, unspotted. And the word heart in Scripture refers to more than just the emotions, like you think of Valentine's Day. It's not just the emotions. Whenever the, the scripture speaks of heart, it also includes the mind and the will of man. In the Bible, the word heart speaks really of the totality of man's thinking and his feeling. Of course, his emotions are involved and also his, uh, his will, his decision-making aspect of him. So it's really, that word heart is really a, a reference to the center of a person's being, his, his total person, his personality. So what does pure, a pure heart, what does it entail? Well, there are several types of purity of heart. I think, were you discussing this in your group times, I think? There is, what, as we saw with um, positional righteousness, there is a positional purity, such as is mentioned over in Acts chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, where Luke wrote about the Holy Spirit's purification of the heart of the person who places his or her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the moment of salvation, just as we automatically receive the righteousness of Christ, we automatically receive a pure heart, positionally speaking, because God looks at us in, in Christ. He sees us in Christ. And Christ, of course, had a, he, was, he had a holy nature. He, was, he definitely had a pure heart. So the one with saving faith is united positionally to a holy Christ because he has been washed clean by the precious, sinless, holy blood of the Lord Jesus. So therefore, he is seen positionally as being pure in heart by God Almighty. Now, does that mean that he is pure in heart in his practical walk, you know, his walk through life? Obviously not. That's what we were talking about. Some people say that they can be um, pure in heart totally in their walk, but we just talked about how that's not really possible. So there is also a practical Purity, which just like practical righteousness is a lifelong process and we do not ever attain it really until glory but the believer can work at achieving practical purity of heart you know we're constantly wanting to improve our hearts aren't we 
always wanting to be more and more holy. So how do we do this? Well, we do it, first of all, by acknowledging that apart from Christ, we cannot do it. We totally are dependent on his power. As it says in Proverbs 29, who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. And the obvious rhetorical answer, these are rhetorical questions, and the obvious answer is nobody. Nobody can say he's made his own heart clean or her own heart clean. It's only, of course, through the power of God, the Holy Spirit living within us. Secondly, he can attain, attain practical purity by walking in the Spirit and in the will of, the, of God and by staying in God's Word. It's his Word that sanctifies us. In other words, makes us more holy, as it says in John 17, 17. And also we can um, stay in the Word and it will cleanse us. It's a, it has a cleansing power. And, of course, what have I missed? Praying. We must always pray. You know, like we said last week, Every decade of our lives, let's pray that we have a more and more holy heart, a more pure heart with each passing decade. We should say, as the psalmist did in Psalm 51:10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And of course, as I mentioned, no one reaches perfection in this life because we do still live in flesh and blood, fallible bodies, but certainly the divine work of grace has begun here on this earth. God's work has begun in us, and we have the promise that one day, that work with which he hath begun, he will what? He will complete. One of my favorite verses is Philippians 1.6, because that gives me hope. You know, what he has begun in me, he will complete in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Jewish people of the Lord's time, and remember, those are the ones he's speaking to primarily here as he's giving the, giving the Sermon on the Mount, they really urgently needed to be reminded of the importance of internal cleansing of the heart because their religious rulers, the scribes and the Pharisees, had externalized purity to a ceremonial ritualism. They had laid, and we've talked about this a little bit in our study already, how they had laid some really heavy burdens on the people with their preoccupation with all kinds of regulations and, and uh, restrictions regarding outward defilement and external cleansings and all their rituals that they had to go through in order to be, to be clean, but it was all an outward thing. Their, their beatific motto, if they had one, would have been something like this, blessed are they who are clean on the outside, for they shall see God. They were, they were blind to the, to the stain and the stink of their inner sins of pride and selfishness and hypocrisy and this is why the Lord Jesus said some of the most harsh words he ever spoke to them in Matthew 23 verses 25 to 27 you know these words he said woe unto you scribes and Pharisees and then what did he call them hypocrites for ye make clean the outside of the cup and the platter but within they are full of extortion and excess you know, it would be like you serving company and, you know, the outside of the cup and the plate are fine and clean, but the inside are filthy. That's what he's saying to them. Outside you look great, but inside you're just full of all kinds of sin. He says, thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Where does purity begin in us? From the inside, and then it works its way outside. When the heart is right, the hands will be right. You'll do what's right. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. It was not a new concept at all to have purity begin within, in the heart. It wasn't something brand new that the Lord Jesus was speaking of here. Actually, he might have even had in mind the words of Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, which ask the questions, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And then that psalm gives the answer to those two questions when it says, He who has clean hands and what? A pure heart. It's also interesting to note that back to that word, pure or catharoi in the Greek, that it was used to describe things such as clear water, absolutely clear water. It was used to describe um, metal that had no alloys in it. It was used to describe grain that had been winnowed 
and all the chaff was out of it. It was, you know, pure. It also was a word which was used to describe unmixed feelings. So in other words, it described things that were free from being tainted, free from being mixed with impurities. So purity of heart really, besides referring to just being pure in actions, it also refers to being pure in word and in thought. And it also has to do with purity of devotion. The person with a pure heart does not have mixed uh, motives and divided loyalties when it comes to his or her relationship with God. And this is what James speaks about when he writes, purify your hearts, you double-minded. You double the kingdom citizen is to be pure in his focus. He's to be pure in his devotion. He's to have a singleness of heart meaning that in the realm of spiritual maturity, he's to have an undivided affection. You know, God doesn't like the double-minded man who's got half of his heart on this world and half of his heart on him. He wants us to be pure in heart in our devotional lives. And we're to lay aside such things as hypocrisy and guile. Who Remember the one he said, hmm, a man in whom there is no guile? Who was that? Nathaniel. Somebody said it, didn't they? Very good. All right. Now, again, of course, we acknowledge that, that none of us in this life is ever going to perfectly attain this virtue or any other of the other beatific virtues. Has that, have you realized that yet? <laughs> Nobody can ever be poor in spirit perfectly. Nobody can ever be perfectly meek. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, who, of course, is the example we're always working toward to be Christ-like. Um, all of these virtues are really beyond our reach because they demand perfection, and we're not perfect. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> we have, however, um, received, and we've talked about the fact that all kingdom citizens have all of these beatific virtues, just like if you're truly born again, you have all the fruit of the Spirit. So we have, even though we'll never reach perfection with any of these, we have received the first fruits of the spirit. So we have the first fruit of each of these beatific virtues. In other words, we have the first fruit of being poor in spirit, the first fruit of being uh, mournful over our sin, etc. And therefore, by casting ourselves on the Lord and his grace, we can develop them as we grow spiritually, you know, in our spiritual maturity. Now, there are, and this is where we get to the painful part, there are some questions, some test questions that we can ask ourselves with regard to how well we're doing in our practical purity, um, how well we're doing with regard to this virtue of purity of heart. We can ask ourselves, and you can come up with some of your own self-examination questions, but these are some that I thought of. Are our motives in what we do for the Lord, you know, why, why we serve the Lord, what we do for the Lord, are our motives pure? Or are they tainted? Are they mixed? Do we genuinely serve the Lord 100% for his glory? Or do we do it for some of our own selfish reasons? To be seen, the praise of men. You know, to go, do we go to church to worship him? Always to worship him and glorify him? Or do we have mixed motives? Well, you know, I want to make sure other people see I'm in church and I'm not a backslider. You know. Our motives, we need to look at our motives. Are they pure? Our, our, it's so hard to say those two words together. Are our affections truly set on things that are above? Or are we more focused on this life and the world around us? And that's really, that's really a difficult, it's difficult because we are in this world. And there's a lot that we need to take care of in this world, isn't there? And especially, oh man, at Christmas time you can just get so stressed out. I'm just already feeling it, just big time. All the things you feel obligated to do. And sometimes you say, why? Why do I have to decorate the house like this? <laughs> I don't really have to. Uh, is the beauty of holiness our deep desire? Do we love what God loves and hate what he hates? Do we grieve over those things that dishonor him? Do we abhor that which is foul and vile and evil? Have we allowed ourselves to become immune to these kind of things? And in the world we live in, it's 
it's sort of like the proverb proverbial frog in the boiling water, you know? He boils to death because he just doesn't feel it getting hotter and hotter. And that's how it is kind of in our world. We get so immune to things like violence. Every time you turn on the news, somebody else is being blown to bits. It's just horrible. And after a while, you kind of just get immune to it. You can't get affected big time every time. because It's so horrific, it's, almost, it's more than we can understand. And we get bombarded with this kind of stuff all the time. The minute you turn your television on, you, you get bombarded with immorality. If, you, if you're out in the workplace, I'm sure you're hearing all kinds of things. The Lord's name taken in, in vain and all kinds of foul language and just talk about what people do on their free time. It's just horrible, isn't it? I mean, I'm pretty sheltered because I'm not out in the workforce, but even just walking sometimes through Walmart, the things I hear shock me. But uh, are we protecting our hearts? Do we protect the purity of our hearts? And, and more importantly, are we protecting the purity of the hearts of our family members, especially for those of you that have children still in the home, or those of you grandmothers or aunts who have an influence over young people? Are you protecting the purity of their hearts by disallowing these things into our homes through such means as, you name them, TV is the first one you think of. Radio, even radio, yeah. And uh, vi videos, video games, ungodly music, definitely. Uh, DVDs, uh, books, magazines, all kinds of, there's just all kinds of trash out there. And we really have to be, we really have to be very concerned about this for the next generation, not only protecting the purity of our own hearts, but the next generation. It is a wicked, it, evil men are waxing worse and worse at a very rapid pace, and we have to protect with all of our soul, mind, strength, and what did I forget? Heart. <laughs> heart. How could I forget that? Talking about the heart. We really need to, to um, protect the sanctity of the home. Make it a little oasis in the world. You know, the church should be an oasis and the home should be an oasis because we know they certainly do get bombarded with it whenever they step outside of the home. It's just prevalent. But at least make the home a place of holiness. Last question, are we content with merely a form of godliness? And I hope not. So those are some introspection questions that can really convict all of us, me, me included. <laughs> at the foremost probably. The reward for the pure in heart is that by faith we, what? We'll see God, we behold God. One of my favorite songs is We Shall Behold Him. I just love that song. We do behold God. We discern, if you're truly a born again Christian, and as you're growing, this will become more and more, you'll see God more and more, but we can discern his goodness and his grace in his sovereign providence. Once you understand that God is sovereign, you see his sovereignty everywhere. You see that he is in control. He did say that evil men will wax worse and worse. He knows what's going on. He's predicted this and he has a plan and it will all work out exactly the way that he said. So we see God's plan, we see God's heart, we see his character, especially as we study the life of his son because we see God in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we see him also where? In his creation, all around us. When you look at creation, you see God, if you have spiritual eyes to see that sort of thing. I remember when I first got saved, I thought, wow, I was just looking at everything with new eyes. It was like, you know, when I got my glasses and I could see again. But I, I, I saw trees and flowers and every, everything in such a brand new light. I thought, wow, it had to have been a, a God that created all this. Why didn't I ever see how beautiful it was before? We see God in his creation. We also see him in answered prayers. Whether he says yes or no, we can see God in answered prayers. We see him in the events of our lives. We see him in the mountaintops and we see him in the valleys. At least we should. The more pure our hearts become, the more vividly we will see God. And the more absorbed we are with him, and the more we are free from all kinds of other distractions, the more we will see him. The more concentrated we become in our study of his word, the more alive his word will become, and the more we will see God in everything, as I said. And <clears throat> we'll see it in his, uh, 
in his word. We'll see, you know, I hope that you see that as we go through his word, that this has to be written by God. It's just too incredible, too amazing. Every little jot and tittle, every little word is so significant. And we, again, we'll see him in creation. We'll see him in all the circumstances of our lives. So our vision will be sharpened as we grow in our spiritual maturity. And the great factor about all this is that the more we see God, the more we become like him, the more we become like God. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into what? The same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. But the greatest part of this um, seventh beatitude reward or promise is in the future. Yes, we see in this life, we can see God, but in the future, we will, and we see him spiritually, you know, with spiritual eyes, but in the future, we will literally see him face to face, won't we? Yeah, praise the Lord. It says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Knowing <clears throat> that one day we will see God and keeping that thought ever present before us is probably the greatest motivation to keep ourselves pure. And this is what John had in mind when he said in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he, Christ, shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him does what? Purifieth himself even as he is pure. That's the greatest motivation of all for a pure heart is to know that one day you will see Jesus Christ face to face. Okay, let's move on now and look at the, the beatitude of peacemaking or soul winning. And before we start that, I want everybody to stand up and do this. Okay? Everybody do this. One, two, three, because I see some of you having a hard time staying away. Now turn around. Turn around. <laughs> okay, now sit down. We'll look at peacemaking. It's probably too warm in here. <laughs> Did you hit each other? <laughs> All right, let's look at verse 9. Peacemaker or soul winning, subtitled soul winning. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. On, uh, well, let me just tell you this little story. This might help wake you up a little bit, too. This is so funny. You know, whenever you're going to teach something, you ought to have your... <laughs> He ought to really be alert for what the Lord is going to try to teach you. I, and I didn't think of this soon enough, but uh, yesterday my husband and I went up to Raleigh to have some more books printed because um, they're on the Scripture Truth book list, and the man called me and he needed 40 more, and I was scrounging around trying to get some, asking some of you if you hadn't written in them, could I please borrow them? But that was good news. I mean, it was exciting, and I didn't want him. I want him to think I'm a professional and that I know what I'm doing, and when he orders 40, I need to send him 40. He does not know that I'm working out of a linen closet, you know, <laughs> which literally I am. <laughs> so we ran up to Copy Max, who does all our printing for us, and uh, I knew they'd have a Christ Christmas rush going on. But the manager there was very gracious, and he always is. He gives us a great price, and, and he said, I'll have it ready for you in two hours. Thought, oh, that's wonderful. So we just, Frank went and called on some furniture stores because my husband sells furniture, and dropped me off and I, I did some Christmas shopping, but you know, all the mind, my mind is really on. I gotta get back home because I gotta study for the lessons tomorrow. But anyway, so after two, actually after three hours, because Frank was late in getting me, and so th we gave them three hours, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. We go back to Copy Max, guess what? <laughs> They're not ready. The manager forgot to tell the other guys. He just left and went home. So they didn't have the, the books ready, so he, he felt so bad, the boy that was there, he said, uh, well, give me another, uh, maybe an hour and a half, and I promise you I'll have them ready. So we went and killed some more time. Make a long story short, we didn't get home till about 7.30 last night, so the whole day was spent. But we did have the books, and the good news is that he gave them to us for free. That was really good news, because he felt so sorry for us. But anyway, I come home, and I still had to do the answer sheets for the leaders, get the answers. You know, that's the benefit of being a leader, you get the answers. But anyway, I um, had to make the copy, so I went to use the copier upstairs in my bedroom, 
And Frank had put the new ink cartridge in a couple weeks ago. I think while I was here at Bible study, I said, could you put the new cartridge in? <laughs> and he did, but I don't know what he did because it didn't work. And, and when I went to use it, it went click, 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 and then ink <laughs> spurted out. It was everywhere. It was just every, and it was powder kind, you know, that little black powder kind of ink. And I, ooh, what a mess. And I, I tried to get it fixed, but I had black all over my hands, all over my clothes. It was all over the floor. And that took a while to clean that mess up. And I thought, ah, but I have another option. I'm getting really technological in my old age. So I took my little diskette and I went down to my husband's computer and stuck it in his computer. And I thought, I can print it off of his printer. So I'm very successful. I get three homework answer sheets and the thing quits. Just <laughs> You know, these things are really temperamental. I cannot, I mean, I wasn't doing anything different. It just decided it wouldn't print anymore. <laughs> But anyhow, so then I, I thought, well, I, I see some errors, and I'm going to make some corrections before I go upstairs and finally going to sit down and study my lesson. And so I start working on his, uh, his computer. <laughs> I hate computers. And all of a sudden, this little message comes up that I have performed an illegal <laughs> operation, like I'm some kind of a criminal. What have I done? <laughs> have you ever had that little message? You have performed an illegal <laughs> operation. You will soon be arrested. <laughs> and so, um, so I couldn't get the computer or the printer to, to work. I have to look at my list here. All right, so what else happened? It was unbelievable. By that time, I was starting to get the picture. Up till then, I was really not too cool. I was starting to really get aggravated. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me. You're teaching on peace <laughs> and a pure heart tomorrow. You're being tested. But it was funny because it took us probably at least, I'm not kidding, two hours to figure out how to package up those 40 books. <laughs> we were cutting boxes apart, and we, we wanted them to arrive at the Scripture Truth in, you know, one piece without being damaged, and we had all kinds of, oh, all kinds of things going on. Poor Connie. Connie was home. She couldn't stand it anymore. She finally just went upstairs and got away from us because we were arguing about how to package these books up in these boxes. But anyway, this morning we called the Scripture Truth people to get, tell them we're ready now because they're supposed to send us a UPS something or other for UPS to come pick it up at our house because they pay for the, the shipping. And the guy says, I'm sorry, I can't help you right now because of all, all, all our computers are down. <laughs> oh, boy, I must have, well, you don't like to say that, but a jinx. I'm just, and then the funny thing is I go to Bible study this morning. That, you know, that happened in the morning. You get dressed, I get to Bible study, and there's this lady waiting for me. As soon as I pull into the parking lot, and she's, we're locked out of the church. The church is locked. Well, the pastor was gone for the week, and he, for, he told somebody to unlock it for us, but they forgot. And so we were locked out of the church. So we had to call a locksmith. You know, by this point, I'm kind of laughing because I'm thinking, I'm really being tested and I'm doing good. I'm peaceful. <laughs> and so the locksmith comes, and he is a real nice man. He actually was a member of the church, so we didn't even get charged. <laughs> and uh, he opens up the church, and we went ahead and had our Bible study, except that he didn't unlock the sound room, which we didn't think about, that it would be locked so that we didn't. I don't have a tape tonight. We're taping it right now. <laughs> That's why. But uh, we couldn't get in the sound room, so it didn't get taped. Well, the funny thing is, after that, all that little ordeal, we, I, I forgot we had a leader's luncheon, but Terry told me there's a leader's luncheon at my house, Catherine. I said, okay, I guess I can, I can do that. So I went to her house for our leader's luncheon, and we're there. We all sit down to have our lunch, and her power goes out. <laughs> I'm not kidding. All this is true. And it just goes on and on from there because afterwards I had one of the ladies in the Bible study whose son works on copiers. I told her about the problem I'm having, so she came to my house for the two of us to help, you know, load up the copier so her son can take a look at it. And she, she, she didn't know it, but she'd stepped in dog dew out in our yard. And she carried the dog dew through my whole house on her shoes. So, anyway... The day isn't over yet. I don't know what it might <laughs> Oh, so. What? You want to go lock the front door? <laughs> He's going to arrest me for my illegal operation. Okay, now that woke you up, so let's go on with the lesson. On both a national and a personal level, mankind has a natural inclination toward fighting. Have you noticed that? 
toward fighting and quarreling and battles and warring. Ever since the time of the fall of man back in the Garden of Eden, Eden, peace has been the most elusive of all goals in the world. Now James, you know, James wrote the book of James, and he's the half-brother. He was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be referring a lot to James because James, you know, he's where the rubber meets the road. His book is very, very practical, and so is the Sermon on the Mount. So you'll be amazed how many times we go to the book of James. But James um, tells us that these conflicts, all the conflicts that man has, come from his own inner lusts. In other words, his, his selfish desires, which are waging war in the heart. And remember, who was James writing his epistle to? The believers. He says over and over again, brethren, my brethren. Just think how the church has been divided into all kinds of factions over the years and how many local churches have split by dissension and how many even Christian families have been divided and broken apart. And when you just think of those few things, you realize how significant it, it is that the Lord Jesus included this beatitude about peacemaking as an important characteristic of kingdom citizens. So once again then, with this seventh sermon beatitude, we find that there is a contradiction to the natural inclination of man. Because man in his flesh is not a peacemaker, he is a peace breaker. Although it would seem that the world continually is calling for peace, peace. You know, whenever you have a Miss Universe contest or something, they always ask, what is the most important thing in the world? What do they always answer? World peace. I mean, that's what you'd have most people, except maybe the extreme extremists, the terrorists and that sort of people. But most, most people would say that they, peace, peace is what they want. <clears throat> but we only need to look at the statistics of history and broken peace treaties. Did you know that every peace treaty that has ever been signed has been broken, without exception? Except the ones that are written right now that haven't been broken, but they will be broken one day. But uh, you just need to look at history to realize that war is in the heart of the natural man. And why is this? Well, this is because the popular and the prominent teaching of the world is to put self first. And scripture clearly tells us that when self is put first, the result is going to be division. It's going to be hatred, strife, and war. However, having said all this about international and um, world peace, really what the peace that the Lord Jesus is speaking about in this beatitude is not a, do a domestic or a political or even an international peace. He is speaking of spiritual peace, which is only possible because of his finished work on the cross. Even though we live in a fallen world where there is no world peace because of Satan's opposition and because of man's disobedience, there can be individual peace, can't there, within those who place their trust and faith in the Prince of Peace, as we read you know, in Isaiah 9-6, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Actually, at the Lord's first coming, he was the peace of God coming down from heaven to remove sin. And sin, of course, is the great barrier to peace. If there was no sin, there would be peace. So it is the great barrier to peace. It says in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, But now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were afar off, or far off, are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Jesus Christ not only brought us peace, but he is our peace. Now, what exactly did the Lord Jesus mean by the use of the word peacemakers? Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, peacemakers are those kingdom citizens. Remember, we're speaking about people who are already saved, and they have the first fruit of, of this peacemaking virtue. They are people who uh, save people who strive to make men love one another. And they do that by teaching and pre preaching the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6.15. They are, in other words, to be soul winners. The unregenerate world of men has, as we've been talking about, has no real and no lasting peace, either individually with God or collectively with one another. They have no peace because of sin. But the Christian does have peace because it has been given to him by 
the triune Godhead. God himself, God the Father, is the source of peace. Christ the Son is the Prince of Peace, and he is the manifestation of peace. He is our peace, and God the Holy Spirit is the giver of the fruit of peace. peace. So no wonder, then, God is called Yahweh Shalom. How many of you know what the word Shalom means in Hebrew? Peace. That's what they kind of greet each other with. They say Shalom when they see each other. It means peace. So Yahweh Shalom is another name for God. It means the Lord is peace. So the Christian is really the only one in the whole world who can be a peacemaker in the biblical sense of the world, a word, because he alone has been divinely empowered by God to do so. God can make peace through a person only when he has made peace within that person. Also, those who belong to the maker of peace can then be messengers of peace. In fact, that's our, that's our calling. That's our duty. It's the duty of every believer to be a messenger of peace. This is what Paul told the Corinthians again. Uh, Once they had been reconciled to God through Christ, he told them that they had the ministry of reconciliation, which means that uh, they were to be peacemakers. God had called them, those God has called to peace, he has also called to make peace. So if you have peace with God, if you've made your peace with God by, you know, acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ's death on your behalf, then it is your responsibility to go out and be a peacemaker, to try to help others also make their peace with God. So we are to be soul winners. We are to be sharers of the gospel so others might be reconciled to the God of peace as we have been. Now, there are five basic things that characterize a a godly peacemaker. One of them we've already talked about is, first and foremost, he must be saved. Now, of course, we're talking about kingdom citizens already, so it's obvious this, you know, a person cannot be a peacemaker without being saved. He must be a kingdom citizen. Now, it's, it is, um, uh, well, I'll go ahead. It's wondrously possible for man to have peace with God because the Lord Jesus made peace with God on our behalf. It says in Colossians 1, 19, 24, It pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Then, after making it possible for the saved sinner to have peace with God, the Lord Jesus gave us his peace. So he he made it possible for us to have peace with God, and then he's so generous and kind and merciful and gracious, he actually gives us his peace. Remember what he said uh, to his disciples on the very night when you'd think he would have no peace at all because knowing the future, he knew he was going to be arrested and crucified that next day. He'd be crucified. And yet he said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. So he gives us, not only does he make it possible for us to have peace with God, but then he gives us the peace of God because he gives us his own peace. And that's the peace that is the peace that passes all understanding. And when we have experienced that both of these wonderful kinds of peace, peace with God and the peace of God, we, um, we, we want to share that, or we should want to share that. And this leads us to the second characterization of being a godly peacemaker and that is what we've already talked about that we need to be soul winners and uh, that's one of the reasons why we are told in preparing ourselves uh, as Christians and putting on our Christian armor one of the pieces of armor we are to wear is we are the shoes we are to shod our feet with the gospel of peace we are to be peacemakers by bringing others into a relationship with the Lord so they also can have peace with God and the peace of God. So how are you doing in that area as being a peacemaker? This is the most important part of being a peacemaker. It's not really what you think about going out there and settling disputes. That's part of it. But the main part of being a peacemaker in the godly, in the biblical sense is to be a soul winner. So how are you doing in your peacemaking skill? Are you out there witnessing to people? Or, you know, just talking to people about the Lord? in whatever form you do that in. Thirdly, he's to be a saint subduer. And I know these sound like really weird terms, but I had to stick with S's. So he's to not only um, try to lead other people to the Lord, but do you think the saints ever quarrel (laughs) among themselves? 
They do. They do. So the, a true peacemaker is going to try to extinguish the flames of disharmony, which even develop among believers. And, uh, and that's, that's a real test of your peacemaking skills. And then he's also to be a secular strife settler. <laughs> a peacemaker will be characterized by his attempts to make peace even out in the secular world, in the secular society around him, not only in his own life, and with those he witnesses to and uh, trying to uh, put out fires maybe in the church, but out there in the world. Paul said, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, that's not always possible because not all men want to live peaceably with us or with each other. Some people just like to be mean and not ever <laughs> at peace. But uh, as much as lieth in us, we are to live peaceably with all men. Now, make sure you understand this. This does not mean peace at any price. Not at all. Because we are not to maintain peace if it means that we have to compromise the truth or if we have to tolerate evil or, uh, or, or our own, you know, um, discredit our own testimony or um, uh, dishonor God in any way. The peacemaker is not simply an easygoing type of person who doesn't care what others are doing as long as it doesn't affect his life. That's how the world might think of a peacemaker, you know, somebody who's, who's just real easygoing and never causes any trouble or, you know, makes any waves. Um, but that's not the biblical description of a peacemaker. A peacemaker is not one who is tolerant of everything just for the sake of making peace. Non-discerning tolerance and unscriptural appeasement do not create a God-approved uh, peacemaker. Now, according to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, those people who attempt to believe that there is peace when there really is no peace, you know, not only does Ezekiel talk about those who say, peace, you know, peace, peace, everything is fine when, there really, when it really isn't, he said they're simply uh, putting untempered mortar, which is unprepared plaster. On, they're, they're covering over cracks and walls with this unprepared mortar. And, and it looks good, uh, you know, up front looks good and might last for a little while. However, when the rainstorms come, that mortar washes away, the cracks are revealed in the wall, and eventually the whole building collapses. You can read about this in Ezekiel uh, 13. And Jeremiah also sp spoke about this same kind of cheap peace. You know, he was warning Israel back in his day that, you know, if you don't straighten up and fly right, judgment is coming. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come over here, you know, and, and take us captive to Babylon. But the Israelites of his time and the leaders, they said, no, no, you know, everything is fine and dandy. And, the, and the, so they were, again, saying there, there is peace when there really is no peace at all. According to Jeremiah, what they were doing, what they were attempting to do, was put a Band-Aid on a very serious, potentially fatal wound. And you can read about that in Jeremiah 6.14. The true peacemaker, however, does not avoid reality by saying that everything is well and fine and dandy when it just plain isn't. He's honest with, with, uh, with reality. Neither will he resist making waves in trying to, to bring true healing or true peace. So it's sometimes necessary for a true biblical peacemaker to stir up trouble in order to make peace. I know that's, that sounds like another uh, uh, Christian paradox, and it is. That's why these Beatitudes are called the sacred paradoxes or the divine paradoxes. It sounds like truth standing on its head. But have you, ever, have you ever encountered this? When you're trying to perhaps witness to somebody so that they might have peace with God, sometimes you really stir up a hornet's nest with them. I sure did with my family when I originally got saved because I want to grab everybody by the throat and say, you know, you're going to go to hell unless you believe in Jesus Christ, and that's not really the most diplomatic way to go about doing it, but um, sometimes you do have to, <laughs> you have to stir up some trouble in order to make peace. The peacemaker must be willing to risk pain 
and misunderstanding and even rejection. So he must be willing to be a real fighter. Now that does seem like a contradiction. The peacemaker must be willing to be a real fighter. But again, it makes sense and it's true. Witnessing to others so that they might also know peace with God is not usually, sometimes it is, but not usually is it a very easy task. So as a Christian peacemaker, we really engage in warfare because we're, we're warring, is that a word? We're battling not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual rulers in dark, you know, the rulers of darkness in uh, Satan's realm. Uh, okay, also he is to be a skilled strategist, the true peacemaker, and uh, you can read about that in your notes. But in other words, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you have to kind of have uh, some skills and strategy. You know, you, you, and, and, the, and the main thing, if you're trying to bring two people, let's say you know a couple is split right now and they need to be reconciled in their marriage, the best thing to try to do as a skilled peacemaker is to find a common grounds between those two people. There's always some kind of common ground. Maybe it's um, their love and concern for their children. But that's where you start. And a peacemaker, you know, about the beam in your own eye, you always need to uh, make yourself, make sure you're pure in heart before you, you know, and poor in spirit and all these beatific meek. And, you know, you don't go to somebody shaking your finger in their, in their face to be a true peacemaker. You're humble. And the, the number one thing you have to remember is Christ-likeness and love and be approachable. People are drawn to somebody who is loving and approachable. And that's, you know, again, all of it goes back to being like Christ. The more like Christ we are, the better at being a peacemaker we will be. So he's a skilled strategist. Now, very quickly, and we're almost through, how does a person... Practically speaking, we've looked at some of his characteristics, and I have talked a little bit about some practical aspects of being a peacemaker, but what are some of the practical ways that we can be a more effective peacemaker? Well, number one, and the one I probably have my, the worst time with, is we are to control our tongue. And I am getting better in my old age with that, but I uh, had a real problem with it as a younger person because I was just real strong-willed and... Uh, real hot-tempered, hot I guess. But I'm learning, slow but surely, to try to control our tongue. But you know what? James says that man can tame every animal there is, but he cannot tame his own tongue. So again, I don't think any of us are going to ever perfectly tame our tongue until we are glorified. And uh, again, we go to James. We should take the advice of James, the half-brother of the Lord, when he said we should be swift to hear slow to speak and slow to wrath. Why? In other words, slow to anger because the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. We should not say or repeat words that don't edify others but just tear them down. We should never say things that don't lift other people up. We should never help to promote gossip. We shouldn't engage in gossip. We should um, always... Uh, no, we should not always express our mind. <laughs> if we did always express our mind, there would never probably be any peace. Some of your thoughts just need to be kept to you. You don't always have to speak your mind. There's enough disharmony in this world that, uh, you know, we should make all of our thoughts, by the way, captive to Christ, and then we wouldn't think anything that we couldn't speak. But again, well, that's a real challenge. We should also see all of life's situations in light of the gospel. Everything in life we should see in light of the gospel. So an effective peacemaker will think of every situation in terms of how it will further the cause of Christ and how it aligns with the word of God. It was like yesterday up at Copy Max. You know, we can't very well get mad at these people and, and speak ugly because they're printing books called The Life of Christ. <laughs> And how is that going to reflect on our Christian testimony? So, you know, I, my husband started getting a little upset, and I kind of stomped on his toe, and I, I said, you know, um, a soft answer turns away wrath. I didn't really say that, but uh, if I had been thinking godly, I would have said that. <laughs> but we, we were gracious, and we got the books for free. So, you see, it does, it does help to be gracious. <laughs> that wasn't good. I shouldn't say that. 
Anyway, to be an effective peacemaker, we should always think of everything in terms of how we can be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and we should put away our own feelings and our own rights. Isn't that what causes so much, you know, self, self, self? And people are so concerned nowadays with their rights. I get so sick of hearing it on the news. You know, this, this one's rights and this one's rights and that blah, 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 blah. If we, we, we just be willing to deny ourselves, give up our feelings and our rights, and, and just be humble. Jesus was. Didn't he give up all of his rights? Who was he? God. He gave up, you know, he was equal with God, and yet he made himself of no reputation. Took upon himself the likeness of a man, you know, became, you know, came in the form of a servant, and even went to the shameful death of the cross. Died a, a shameful, humili- the most humiliating death, hanging there naked before all the world, he was willing to give up his dignity and his rights and his self to be a peacemaker, and so should we. We should leave third a trail of peace behind us. Don't you want that to be a testimony when you go, go on to glory, that you left a trail of peace and not turmoil behind you? You know, are you known for being a troublemaker more than you are for being a peacemaker? I hope not. Um, to be an effect, effective, godly peacemaker we will have sort of just a spiritual atmosphere of peacefulness all about us. And others will be drawn to that. Even, even non-Christians are drawn to that kind of person. Even, the, um, even some very hardened people will be drawn to that. And how do we achieve such a quality of having this atmosphere of peacefulness about it? Well, us, we do so by being totally, again, selfless. Poverty of spirit. Everything always goes back to that first beatitude. We must be poor in spirit. We must become Christ-like. As I said, completely approachable. People are drawn to the, to the individual who has forgotten about ego. They're, they're just kind of like, like a magnet. You, you like to go somebody, to somebody who isn't all concerned with their own ego. Don't you? I do. I really like that in a person. You know, I like to talk to somebody who looks me in the eyes when they talk to me, too. I don't know where that came from. just floated in my head when I... Do you like to talk to somebody who, when you're talking to them, they're looking all around? I don't know. I don't know. I, that just happened to me, so that's why. I, not, none of you. It didn't happen to you. Uh, people are drawn to a person who is sympathetic. They're drawn to somebody who's understanding, non-judgmental. People in general, people, now there's always exceptions, but people in general desire to be around those who just have a peacefulness about them. Pe- they, they've made peace with God. They've made peace with themselves. There's a lot of people have no peace with themselves um, and, and peace with others. You like to be with somebody like that who's calm, cool, collected, peaceful, understanding, approachable. Who am I describing? The Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're to be Christ-like. So how about you? Are you a troublemaker or are you a peacemaker? Does discontent seem to be your constant companion? I hope not. I hope you're not discontent with, with your life. I hope you're very content. Um, I, do you have a critical spirit? It's not one of the one of the spiritual gifts, <laughs> the gift of criticism. <laughs> do you search to find faults with people and point them out? Uh, have you been responsible for sowing discord or dissension in your church for non-scriptural, non-doctrinal reasons, like the color of the wallpaper or something? Do you seem to to take a secret delight when you hear negative comments about other people? Does it make you inwardly glad to hear of scandals and mistakes that others have made? Do you help to spread gossip? Are you willing to risk pain and misunderstanding and loss of dignity and rejection, as we're going to see in the next Beatitude, the Beatitude about persecution, so that others might have their peace with God through his son. Remember now, when I'm asking you some of these questions, we're not talking about our, whether you're battling with your flesh to improve in these areas, because we all are. There's not one that I mentioned that I'm not battling with. We're all battling with them. But what I'm talking about here is if a non-peacemaking spirit describes you in general, that's your, that's your character, and there has been no change in years. No change at all. Maybe, maybe you went to forward in church or, or ex- accepted Christ when you were five years old, 
And since that time, there's really been no change in your character. You're not really known for being a, a peacemaker. And you're not convicted to change. Then I really, truly think that you need to make your peace with God. But when I ask these questions and you're really convicted about them and you're struggling with them and you really want to improve on them, you know, that's an indication that the spirit within you is convicting you. And you do want to change. If you want to change, that's good. That's a good thing. But there are people out there who are troublemakers and they could care less. And, and they're getting to be more and more of them. And then we're to be aggressive in our peacemaking skills. We're not to just wait around for problems to arise before we attempt to settle them. We're to go out of our way to look for new ways and new methods to make peace. You know, we're to be innovative in our peacemaking skills and in our soul winning skills. So we say, oh Lord, make each of us to be godly peacemakers through whom others are drawn to you, right? And what is the reward for the peacemaker? It's the promise of being called the children of God. This means that we are owned by God himself. And what's interesting, and I have not pointed this out, with each and every one of these beatitudes, when it gets to the promise, like where it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and when it says, for they shall be comforted, and here where it says, for they shall be called the ch children of God, in every one of those situations, the Greek is given in the exclusive, which means that they are the only ones who receive the kingdom of heaven. They are the only ones who will be comforted. They are the only ones who will be filled or satisfied if they hunger thirst. And they are the only ones who will be called the children of God. And that is a great reward, isn't it? To be called the son of God, the children of God. With, that means that we alone have divine paternity. He is our father. Peacemakers are those who are God's children because they are doing the very work which the son of God began when he came to earth the first time and which he will finish when he comes again. You know when he comes again? He will bring peace on earth. At long last, there will be peace on earth, goodwill toward men.